Revelations and revelations No longer restricted access This is a place of elevation I'm standing in my purpose I'm standing in my wealthy place Purpose Producer Welcome back to the Purpose Producer Podcast. I'm your host, Georgia Dawkins, and today my guest is someone who's not only known for what they do, but for who they are and for how they make people feel. Yes, he is a true purpose producer, but you may know him as a stand-up comedian, an actor, and a producer. He's best known for being a correspondent on Comedy Central's Emmy Award-winning The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. But right now, you can see him in theaters and confess Fletch. Please welcome Mr. Roy Wood Jr. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Stop with the applause. Stop it. My live audience, they so distracting. Oh, God. <laughs> it's too much. I'm so happy to see you. We first met like this virtually on Instagram Live in 2020. But this year, yeah. I got to meet you in person, hug you. And thank you. And here you are. I'm the purpose producer. Hot ass Las Vegas. Why would you have a National Association of Black Journalists Conference? Hot ass Las Vegas. As much as black people trying to forget slavery, you took us to slavery heat and then set us, us out. Pool. To... But they gave us a pool. They did. They did. That, <laughs> that, that was a very nice. That was a big ass pool. That season Palace. That pool was two blocks long. It was, it was so hot we had to integrate you wanted <laughs> yeah. to be on the other side of the pool but you just had to be a different thing yeah well, <laughs> well yeah I'm, thank you I'm for happy, having me though. i'm happy that you're here you were just a, a great person and i remember seeing you when you first walked up to the pool side at caesar's palace and i was like that's ruined here i am i've interviewed you twice already and i was still afraid <laughs> to come up and talk to you but my friend she pushed me she's a really great friend and you were just so welcoming as if we had known each other for years and so you know that was your first time for it so what was your first nabj conference like uh it was it was very nice i mean it's weird considering i have a degree in journalism and i was an nabj in college i wasn't very active because i was doing stand-up and then once i got into radio and just i just started working i just was on the road my only obsession was comedy so anything else just fell by the wayside. I didn't pledge. I didn't play intramurals. I didn't really have a lot of homeboys and partners when I was back in Birmingham because I just wanted to work. So to be at the conference, you know, I went to some of the activations, but a lot of it for me was like a professional class reunion of just all of these different people on television who've been kind enough to either have me on their programs or a lot of radio DJs who carried my prank calls you know, back in the day, which was a large part of how my growth in comedy uh, began. So, you know, it, it's it's definitely, it's it, it was definitely dope. To I'm happy I went. I'll put it that way. Yeah, we're going to see you so, in Birmingham next year? I Yeah, I got to go to that one because that's the crib. So <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was it was definitely a cool thing to just be there and be a part of. Well, you definitely belong in that place. You're one of the best storytellers I've ever encountered. And you're everyone's favorite storyteller's favorite storyteller. Um, I saw, uh, I'm a big fan of Robin Thede, and she gave you a shout out and said, you were the best. You're the best to ever do it. You know, that's that's a huge compliment. I've been watching her for years. I appreciate that. 
I still will. I I still, you know, dollar for dollar, if we're talking about storytelling that's funny and poignant and touching, I'm paying money to see Ali Sadiq. So, you know, we can have that debate offline, but, you know, the guy that I'm always enthralled with is Ali Sadiq. And the pacing is Dick Gregory level with Ali. I I appreciate the compliment. I'm not trying to deflect. I know in these mental health times, you're supposed to accept the flowers that people get. But also, Ali Sadiq. Yeah, yeah. But see, that's why we love you. That's why you are everyone's favorite because you don't mind sharing the limelight or giving the flowers, and you know when they're due to someone else. So you're definitely just amazing. Um, you are on the on a press tour right now with your best pledge. Um, how has that been going? All the the red carpets and the talk shows. What's it? What's it like? <laughs> It hasn't been a super ton because we're not top gun, you know, but, you know, I've been blessed enough, you know, to step out with Kelly Clarkson, Stephen Colbert, uh, Tamron Hall's right around the corner. Then after that, Seth Meyers, you know, I guess that kind of is a lot. Um, (laughs) And that part of it's been dope. You know, this is my first feature, you know, I've done films before. I've done one or two movies before, but in terms of a proper studio theatrical release, you know, with the heavyweight star attached to it as well, it's the first one. So, you know, to be working with John Hamm, you know, that was a beautiful thing. That was a good two months in Boston. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. It, it was, you know, everybody came to work. The director, Greg Matola, gave the actors a lot of options and ideas and different places we could take our comedy. And, you know, we were able to put together something that was really damn good. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. Y'all need to go and check it. <laughs> 90%. Congratulations on that. I, what I love about it is from feature films to Twitter to TikTok, you can tell a story on any platform, including POV, The Mutual Ground, which was nominated for a News and Doc Emmy. Why was it important for you to tell that story? Well, you know, that one, I have to tip the hat to the director um, and star, I guess you could say, of the document, well, the stars, the American people. But um cj hunt um is the journalist who took us on that journey and he and i were working together at the daily show and he was about halfway through that documentary the documentary the neutral ground started as a doc about the laws and referendums that were going into place in the city of new orleans to remove a confederate monument while that documentary was being shot charlottesville happened trump happened and the conversation around monuments grew to something much more national. And CJ just started following everything around. And so, um, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing to see how much that story had started unfolding. And CJ came to me and was like, yo, I got this idea for this thing. Will you help me produce it and bring it to market? And so then that became a process of me kind of giving notes and talking to him about, why this particular part of the story mattered or didn't matter and where to put it in the final edit, you know, it, it, you know, but he was in a lot of dangerous places talking to a lot of wild people with a lot of wild views. And that's why I was like, well, CJ, maybe you should go do that. Cause Trevor Noah already does that to me enough at the daily show. So you go, you know, that's what executive produced me. Executive produced mean you go, <laughs> I'm going to be at the house. I love that. Um, look, <laughs> you also have a really successful stand-up special out right now in Perfect Messenger. 
you know, you you were a great writer. I'm wondering, as a, a stand-up comic, I've been doing comedy for two years now here in Atlanta. What is your a- approach to stand-up? What does your, your writing process look like? For me, when it comes to writing, it's not just comedy now that I'm learning more you know, with the television shows that I've been, you know, the TV pilot scripts, I've been blessed enough to sell. Um, What is the conversation that's already happening on an issue? And do I have a new angle or something new to add to said issue? And that's it. And so the issue could be like the anthem. This isn't an imperfect messenger. It's in my second special, No One Loves You. The set could the, the 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 issue in real life could be stand for the anthem, take a knee during the anthem, and that's always the debate: stand or kneel, stand or kneel. My comedy comes in and says the anthem is a terrible song. Maybe if you change the song, more people will stand. And then the joke is an exploration of what are the better songs that should be the national anthem now that America has changed. And that's where you get the joke without sitting on either side of the issue. I sold a pilot, shot a pilot for Comedy Central a while back called Jefferson County Probation. And it's simply just about recidivism. When you look at um, crime and punishment on television, it's portrayed in scripted shows. It is just cop, courtroom, jail. Those are the three realms, you know, pursue the criminal you know, try the criminal in court or the jailhouse experience. So, But there are no shows about recidivism. There are no shows about returning citizens trying to reenter society and the people that are tasked with helping them get their life together after getting out of prison. So I just wanted to show about that. So that's where creatively where I try to, you know, where I try to work is in a space where there has not yet been any ideas mined or the topic hasn't been, you know, breached as much. I I love comedy because it's really been a tool for healing for me personally, as well as, you know, cultural community as well. I'm wondering, has comedy ever been a tool for you to navigate a difficult season? Yeah, I'd say my whole life, you know, stand-up has always been the one constant. And the thing that I always love about stand-up comedy you know, more than television or film or anything else. It's the one thing that, it's the one thing I can always trust. And, you know, with respect to my mama, I know you watch your mama, I can trust you. But comedy, I know I will get out of it exactly what I put into it. And it's the same, as sure as you put a dollar in a change machine and four quarters drop out, that's what stand-up comedy has been for me. And so, you know, there's always going to be dark times where you're trying to figure out your career and what's going on. And man, why ain't got to the next level, whatever the next level is and what you do. It's important to have that thing that still speaks to you and gives you a degree of emotional stillness. And, you know, comedy has always been that, you know, comedy. I love comedy because no one can take it from me. The people decide it's a democracy. If I show up in a city and people want to pay money to see me, I win. I don't have to go through executives and get approvals and green lights and get notes and alter my, no, I showed up in town. People gave me money and you can do that literally until the day you die. It doesn't discriminate stand-up comedy. You know, 
You can be old, you can have a disability, you can be whatever race. In fact, the more unique your race is, the better you probably are now because specificity is the new broad. Your tribe gonna come find you. So, you know, that part of it, that's what's important to me. I love that that's what's important to you because you and your story and your position is so important to the future of comedy. And you really have your pulse on, your finger on the pulse of who's coming next. And you've been mentoring a lot of female comics as well. So just from your perspective, you know, you're out there, you're, you're in the clubs as well. Um, who, who's, who has next? I wouldn't, well, let me rephrase that. I wouldn't say mentor because mentors sound like eventually I'm going to try and grab their booty. No. And like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, I, what I will say is I have learned over the years, there was a booker. Um, I'm not going to say their name. They can kiss my ass. There was a booker. Um, in the early aughts, like 06, 07, 07, 08 money. And he would always put me with this wonderful, wonderful, hilarious comedian and TV writer now, uh, lesser known then, uh, a woman by the name of Aaron Jackson. And so being a, I was a road comic for nine years, right? Which means that every week I work with someone different. I don't really have a say and who I work with. It's just, it's literally luck of the draw when you're a road comedian because you're essentially booked as an independent contractor. It's like, like if you worked a wedding, the caterer doesn't know who the florist is going to be. And the florist doesn't know who the DJ is going to be. But I bet you, if you cater enough weddings, you run into the same florist, the same DJs, the same, you're like the community is small. It's not a lot of black women on that, you know, on that tip. And so I go to, I go to um, Baltimore and I'm performing at the comedy factory and Aaron Jackson's the opener and she crushes, you know, she did, did, did her job. And mind you, I'm at a point in my career where I don't have leverage yet. I'm not selling enough tickets to be able to say this, who I want. And like, I wouldn't even know who I would have wanted. Like in those days I was just booking my friends so I could have somebody to hang out with. Like, if a gig let me bring somebody, you know. But when I got on stage after Aaron, I had a better set. And then the next show, I had a better set. And the next show, I had a better set. And I started seeing a direct correlation. And that book had kept booking us together for a while. And I started understanding the concept of booking a show as a meal. Pair, you know, if we were talking about pairing foods together, you know. You know, I like pound cake. I love spaghetti. They don't go together. But spaghetti and meatballs, spaghetti and cornbread, like that's a much better, you know, plate to build. So when I got, so when I got to a point um, where I could start picking my openers, the first thing I try to do when I'm working a market, I try to pick comedians from that market. You know, as an opener, when I started, I would get bumped a lot for headliners who brought their own people. And that used to be a bummer because you wouldn't find out about it until the day before. So you, you could have been working somewhere else. You didn't told your friends you're going to be it just, it's just, it's not a good look. And so what I decided to do, what I decided to do 
was start finding people who work in that region, but I also wanted what I had with Aaron Jackson. So I started going to the bookers and I was like, yeah, well, let me see. And I wouldn't tell the booker black women because I'm trying to Jedi mind trick them. I would go, yeah, what women do you have in your market? Let me send me some links. And then I would just always pick the black one. Like that's <laughs> that's like literally all I would do. And so it was a win-win for me because also local comics tend to bring people, which helps you sell tickets, which helps you get rebooked. So there's a synergy to it. And, you know, the shows are better. There's just a warmth that I feel women comedians add to a show. And then black women comedians add a layer of understanding and empathy and make an audience feel good, which is important for me because I'm angry about a lot of weird shit. So it's almost a good cop, bad cop type dynamic. And, you know, I don't know, just over the years, I've just always loved the chemistry that it creates on stage. And then it also hopefully creates opportunities for these ladies to go back to those markets as a headliner. You know, I think that's really, you know, where a lot of this goes. Um, Who's next in the black woman comedy carousel? Jeez. Give me Paris Sachet, Amina Amani, Ayana Dukey, Ashima Franklin. These are all solid women comics. Um, you know, Aaron, I would say Aaron Jackson, but she has like, she's done Netflix once or twice now and writes on a, the Upshaw. So she's, she's, you know, she's round in second and third base. Um, ooh, you gotta let me marry that. Oh, just niche. Jesus Christ. Just niche and Ty Davis. Oh my God. I can't believe it. I almost forgot that. Yeah. I've been able to see a few of them here in Atlanta. Um, yeah. They, they're all, they're all damn good. They're all damn good. Now, is this um, also an opportunity for you to teach them about the business of comedy or show business rather, you know, how, how do yeah. they, you know, pick the manager or the agent or I mean, make money off the game? I do that for all comedians, but you know, if you're in the green room with a comedian, you know, you can chop it up a little bit. We didn't end up using the footage, but when I shot Imperfect Messenger, Paris Sachet, that's the woman you see in the opening of Imperfect Messenger who comes yes. into the room. And says, Over hey, in DC, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, she's from D.C. We shot in Denver. And so Paris Paris and I talked about process and writing. Because here's the thing. You also learn something from the younger comedians. I like working with, you know, you want to talk about a bias I have. I prefer working with comedians that are younger than me. Because they have their finger on something that I may not have the time for because I'm tired or because I'm a fucking parent. And I got shit to do every day. And we saw your so, son in Imperfect Messenger. He's so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, he was also, shout out to <laughs> Lil Young. Reporter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think that, you know, I'm not sitting anybody down deliberately and going, here's how you do comedy and make it. But if you ask, and I feel like you are an actual craftsperson of the, of the, of the occupation, I'll tell you. And if I don't respect you, I'll give you some foo-foo advice. You won't know it's foo-foo. It's not bad advice, but it ain't the best advice I could give you because you don't deserve all the real good nuggets, you know? 
but you know, in working with black women, you know, that has always been, you know, the goals, you know, so that it's like, like after a show, the biggest compliment that I can, that I can be paid after a show is to see more people talking to her than to me. That's good. Look on that note. I know so many. It, here's um, the thing. Let me just say this real quick. I'm not, I'm not trying to cut you off because I think what, what comedians, what other comedians have to understand, what I hope other comedians understand is that by booking a comedian that is not funny to open for you, you're cheating yourself and the audience. Because at the end of the day, when the audience leaves my show, they're going to know that the whole show is funny. People are going to leave the show and go, oh, well, that was great. Even if you like her more than me, you still left feeling good. So that's all you're going to remember. So the next time I come through town, you're going to come. Because if you do like me, you know the whole show is going to be great. And you know you're not going to have to sit through 45 minutes of a lame duck or some bullshit before you get to the person that you actually wanted to see. And so you're cheating yourself and you're cheating your audience by creating the imbalance in the show. By by not doing that, you know, I, I just... I just wish more comedians understood and realized that, that at the end of the day, you get all the glory for a solid comedy show. And we need that right now. We need that, that release, that relief of laughter. Um, I'm fortunate to know a few of the female comics that you have been able to put on or at least share your light with. And I have a special, special message from one of them today, if you don't mind. I'm just oh <laughs> shit! I forgot to shout out Mel Mitchell. Mel Mitchell is man. It's it's. I've worked with too many. I can't remember them all. I'm sorry. Look, we don't expect you to, but I have a <laughs> message right here. I want to play it for you. I'll give you a chance to uh to respond. Hey Roy, it's Mel. I want to say thank you so so much for giving me opportunities as a young female comic and not being a weird ass nigga because that's very rare to find. I'm shooting this video in my car because I'm still at this fuck-ass job and I'm leaving right now. But <laughs> thank you so much for creating so many amazing opportunities for me and just giving me a chance and just taking a chance on a young black bitch like myself. And I'm very, very thankful for the way that you reach back and the way that you really are so personable and down-to-earth. Like, it means the absolute world to me and I can't wait to be that for someone else. But thank you so much. Mm. This is me giving you your flowers or whatever else you want. Thank you, and you are a real nigga. I cussed a lot. <laughs> I asked for permission to cuss, and I cussed a lot. But we be cussing. But thank you. Love you. Bye. Yeah. Right Way there. to go, man. <laughs> um, you know, Mel. Mel is very hilarious and honest. You know, she stinks too. You know, she needs to move. She needs to move. She's got to get out of Atlanta. It's time. You know, I've been feeling that too. I've She's been here six years there. now. And I'm like, you know, I think I've hit a wall. My thing is this. If you're going to have a job that you hate, have a nightlife you love. And, you know, there's opportunity. Everywhere you're trying to travel from Atlanta, you can travel to from New York. All you did was add an hour on the plane. For most of that stuff and the way gas is priced out gas damn near the same price as a plane ticket round trip so you may as well you know i, I don't that, that's i'm not here to <laughs> critique mail but that's just probably the one thing that i clock and a lot of new comedians you know 
is when they are going to move because I waited too long. You know, I was almost nine years in the South before I finally moved to L.A. You know. And what did that do for you? What's it being in L.A. do for you? Uh, it gave you some connection, gave you a little bit more of a North Star. You have to be around people that have the same ambitions, that have ambition. And it's hard to find that in this in outside the coast. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in Atlanta. Atlanta also, I have to be careful. It's a much more different comedy scene than when I came up in 98. So starting in 98, there wasn't like independent rooms and alt rooms where you could go and perform at two o'clock in the morning. Like Atlanta got some weird shit going on where you can get a lot of stage time in that city now. So maybe you do have enough people to run with and get your weight up, but sooner or later you have to pick a coast or you have to just go full-blooded independent and just be okay with being who you are separate and apart from the industry. Yeah. You know, that goes for anybody in any industry, really, you know, sooner or later you have to figure out, you know, who you're going to be aligning yourself with. Yeah. I think everything that Mel said in that video and everything that I've seen you and her do together is an example of why you are a purpose producer. Um, A purpose producer is someone who's using their gifts to help someone else work their dreams. And so I just want to thank you for being that because it it matters. You know, it has a ripple effect what you do for other people and, and the people around them. And I'm just curious, who are the purpose producers in your life? Uh, too many to name. Oh my God, too many to name. Like, Goody Mob, I don't remember which nigga in Goody Mob said this, but it's always stuck with me. Everybody is somebody because of somebody else. And so, you know, I for sure am the product of the benevolence of innumerable people, especially men, you know, who really helped me in life. Um, you know, I, like I gave him a shout out when I did Family Convocation, but, you know, William E. Gilmore. So William E. Gilmore, who was, who still is um, a stand-up comedian from Tallahassee and a family rattler, you know, he used to put me on shows. He saw me doing stand-up. This, I met him the second night I ever performed stand-up. The first night I ever performed in Tallahassee, Gilmore was there. And so, you know, he was a student of the game. There wasn't a joke told in Tallahassee that Gilmore didn't see. Even if he wasn't on the show, I'm here to see what's going on, investigating the scene. And, you know, he he took me on the road with him. I didn't get to perform a lot, but I got to see a lot. And that was important. You know, watching how he worked the room, like it was all training. And that was very much... You know, if we're just talking comedic purpose producers and things like that, I would start there with Gilmore. Um, Also, you know, I had a radio, my first boss in radio was a guy named Samuel Mack, a.k.a. Buckwild. Not the same from starring Buckwild, but his radio name was Buckwild. And I bust my ass for that show. I was supposed to be a fourth chair comedian, but I knew how to edit. Like I had all my journalism, I had a journalism degree. So how can I not chip in in other capacities? And it got to a point where eventually I was the producer of that show for free. Then 
it got to, you know, as an intern and I, no one pressured me to do any of this. You know, I've just always been of the mindset that if you can make yourself irreplaceable in any space, then eventually they have to see the value and they have to pay up or you walk and either way they let you do the job. So now you have the experience. It's almost like giving yourself a free, pro, an unpaid promotion in a way. Because please believe on my resume, I was putting that I was the producer of the show. The next job, you'll know that I wasn't getting paid for it. What, you got to pay me as a producer for me to put down I'm a producer? No, nah, dog. I'm the producer. Um, But I just, I'll never forget, you know, as I started getting into money arguments with the radio station that never wanted to pay me, you know, under the table, Buck used to give me part of his quarterly bonus that the station was giving him. You know, this cat gave me extra bread out of his own pocket just so I could, you know, try and stay in the mix. And like that, I've never forgotten that one. You know, like that, that was probably, you know, it might even be the impetus for me helping and doing other stuff for other comedians. You know, those two people, Gilmore and, and Sammy Matt, because, you know, I was getting helped at a time that, you know, I didn't need, like, why are you helping me? You don't, like, I'm not good. <laughs> like, what are you, what are you even trying? You know, for all of William Gilmore knew, I could have quit comedy the next day. It was only my second time ever doing it. I don't even, here's a little caveat for anybody listening. If you've been doing comedy less than two years, I can't help you. Like, there's just certain things you have to go through alone and discover and feel and then understand. And if you're still wanting to do comedy after all of those gut punches, all right, now I'll help you. Never forget, I wasted my advice helping some damn girl, a black woman. And this Negro going to quit talking about she got a job with a Fortune 100 company and I want my six-digit salary and she's successful now and in the C-suite. But how dare you? Gave all that good ass advice, and then she gonna quit comedy two months later. Negro. <laughs> Every everyone thinks that I switched careers. They say, "Oh, you pivoted to comedy," and I was like, "I didn't pivot. I just evolved. Like I do production. I just also now do comedy, and it's really helping me exercise other muscles and you know show up more confident in spaces and definitely making me a better writer." So. I hear you. I just yeah. hit my two year mark, yeah. so for sure. Uh, okay, so then we can talk now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited about it. I do want to talk about Fam You. You've mentioned being a rattler. We're both rattlers. I was there when you were there um, delivering the um, homecoming co convocation. Oh, well, it was homecoming convocation. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the chance to see you then. I thought that was going to be the moment we got to meet. I was with Marlon Walker, uh, who always tells me stories about. Shut up. <laughs> you guys on the hill, but you know, Fan News School of Journalism yeah. is celebrating 40 years of accreditation, 40 years of being the first HBCU journalism program that is accredited. So I'm curious, what role has Fan U played in your career? Uh, Fan U has always been the school that supported me when no one else did, you know, and I talked about it a little bit at Convocation, just about, you know, getting arrested for stealing stealing, you know, jeans over at Dillard to whatever, and that getting me on probation on campus. 
you know, almost expelled low key. So being able to continue my education after making a mistake, I, the, the way I just boil it down is that, you know, FAMU and I believe most HBCUs, and this is where HBCUs to me matter more than a PWI, is that I know for sure when I am at an HBCU, there's somebody on this campus who sees me for what I could become and not for who I currently am. And when you're dealing with young black minds, it is important to see their potential in a brighter light than what they are currently exhibiting. I never went to a white, white college, so I can't say for sure, but I would imagine it's just my guess that the odds of finding that person who views potential over present is going to be lower. So, you know, that's what I benefited from at FAMU. And that's why I was able to go out and continue doing stand-up comedy. I'm like every other alumni. You grew up angry because you had one professor that did the thing and then they took too long to give you the paperwork to do the other thing. But, you know, you hit your 30s and then you realize, man, that was a good ass time. And I want to make sure that other people are able to have a good ass time. I know that good people have come from that institution. So, you know, the only thing I'll scream louder than FAMU is Birmingham. But, you know, I love them both. <clears throat> Why is it important for people who love HBCUs to support them financially? Well, that's where it starts. Money. You can't do none of this without money. I do think that a lot of it is federal issues that need to be that need to be fixed. Um, I do think that that is very, very important because if you're not trying to get a little scholarship program together or send a student there or something like that, you know, what are you doing? Uh, It's you're showing up and dancing at the homecoming. All right, that's cool. But to make sure the next student has this experience, you know, a lot of these black colleges are hurting. So you got to pass the hat and that's just what the game is going to be, you know, for a little while. What I, what I wish we would also have in place is some degree of transparency from the administration side, just on how money is spent and where money goes. And, and I'm not talking about family, you, you know, specifically, but there are a lot of money mismanagement issues that happen at HBCUs and that you can't blame that on white folks. And so that's the type of stuff that also discourages alumni giving, you know, you can give and give and give and give and give, but if y'all ain't going to do right with the money, then you're kind of making people want to give less, you know? So it's, it's very important. It's very important. Even if it's $500, send it, you know, like that will always help somebody get to their next meal and get to their next thing and then get to that degree. It's been so amazing to talk to you today. I'm so honored that you are sharing your time with me. Any last words from the amazing work with Julian? I don't have nothing else to say. You know, I think that, I just think it's important that whatever path you're on, you know, even if it's not in entertainment, to just surround yourself with positive people and anyone negative, anyone who doesn't know what they want to do in their own life, anyone that is down on themselves, they got to go. And that includes family. Family, you can, I'll see you at Thanksgiving. We can talk at Thanksgiving. But you, don't you be around them people on a regular basis. Wear your ass out. Mm-hmm.
Producer. 